I want you to turn to uh, Romans chapter 7 this morning. We want to look at verses 1 through 6. Married to Christ is what I've titled the message. And let's uh, ask the Lord to uh, bless our time in the Word. Lord, again, we thank you for your Word. Minister to our hearts as we study. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly in a way that's applicable and profitable for us as a people. So we commit our time in the Word to you. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you note on the slide overhead the uh, outline of the book. The theme, of course, is the righteousness of God slash the gospel of God. And we have worked our way down to that section on sanctification of the believer in chapter 6 through 8. Paul in Romans is very methodical in presenting the truth of the gospel. And in general, here is his flow of thought. After the introduction, he has uh, the theme that relates to sin, the universal sin problem, as we find in 1B through 3A. That's followed by justification by faith alone in Christ, 3B through 4. And then the resultant position, our solidarity, union, identification with Christ in chapter 5. This position is then illustrated through a series of metaphors, if you will. Baptism. We're talking about spiritual baptism. There's no water in Romans chapter 6. Not directly. Of course, uh, water baptism is a picture of things. But uh, really, uh, baptism, uh, spiritual, and then slavery. We're now slaves of God. And then today, marriage. Marriage. Paul, in the main part of Romans, is showing us really three things. Number one, he is showing us how to be saved through faith in Christ, justification by faith alone. Number two, he is showing us on the basis of our faith, our established position of being in Christ and what that means. And three, he is showing us how we should then live. So we can break it down like this. Justification by faith, chapters 3 and 4. Solidarity with Christ, chapter 5. And sanctification that flows out of that, chapter 6 through 8. So Paul emphasizes that being saved by faith is a whole lot more than just being forgiven. It results in a changed life. All the relationships of life are changed in saving faith. In Romans 6, Paul emphasizes that our relationship with sin has changed. And now in Romans 7, he emphasizes that our relationship with the law has also changed. In Paul's mind, sin and law are very closely related. We see this in various places, even like in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56. The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. So you can see how they are very closely connected. The word sin is found, and it depends which commentary you read and, and what uh, you know, you're looking at here, but the, the word sin is found 17 times in chapter 6. The word law is found 19 times in chapter 7. A great comparison is to read the first six verses in each chapter, and it will give you the flavor of what Paul is saying in relationship to both sin and the law and how they are so closely related. 
Now, believers have two great issues. Now that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, how does our grace position relate to sin? This is so important because we all still wrestle with sin. Secondly, how does being under grace relate to law? As true believers, we now want to please God, but how does that relate to the law? These are great questions. Now, there may be some Christians who understand justification by faith, and they understand that because of our identification with Christ, we are no longer in bondage to sin. But what about the law? They may think that, yes, I'm saved by faith, but now I have to try and live under the law to please God. This is what Paul is dealing with in Romans 7. And Paul shows that we as Christians are now dead both to sin and to the law. We're saved by grace through faith, and we live by grace through faith. We are under grace all the way in relation to both justification and sanctification. And right here is the problem in the minds of some people. They think that grace does not really adequately deal with the problem of sin. We need to bring a little law into it. But Paul is arguing that properly understood, grace is very sufficient. And so what do we see? Let me break down what we're looking at this morning in Romans 7, 1 through 6. Verse 1, the rule of law broken by death. Verses 2 and 3, the principle illustrated in marriage. And verses 4 through 6, application is made and explained. As newborn Christians, the tendency is often to be very lawish or legalistic in the state of immaturity. We know we are saved by faith, but then we seem to want to live by law. And some never seem to grow out of this, frankly. Keeping lists of do's and don'ts is easy. It doesn't require much thinking. Somebody just has to tell you what to do. And it's easy to gravitate to this. But this quickly morphs into ugly legalism. There are really two extremes in Christianity. There are those who think grace gives a license to sin. That is what Paul dealt with in chapter 6. And then there are those who, while understanding we are saved by grace think that we should then live under law to please God. And both of these are dead wrong. So we could break it down like this. There's license, the, the whole mindset of license. That is a skewed orientation. Then there's legalism, very self-oriented. Okay, I'm saved by grace, but now it's up to me to really do whatever to please God. And then there's really the proper uh, aspect, love, love-oriented, spirit-oriented, and we will develop this as we go along. Let's get into our study, Romans chapter 7, verse 1, or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. The word or here connects back to Romans six fourteen, and continues the thought of what he stated there. Let me bring it up and show you, Romans 6, 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. 
Paul is now going to explain what it means to not be under law, but rather under grace. It is thought that the church in Rome was largely Gentile with also a good representation of converted Jews. When Paul says that he speaks to them as those who know the law, he very possibly is speaking simply to the principle of law, whether it be the law of God or civil law. Paul uses the word law in several different ways in Romans 7 and 8. In each case, we need to consider the context to see what the nuance in view really is. But uh, note uh, at least three different ways that he uses this. Law is used by Paul here. Uh, law is a governing principle. I think that's what we have here in verse 1. Uh, he uses it in relationship to the, the Mosaic law in particular in verse 7. And then uh, the whole of the Old Testament scriptures later on in the chapter. In view here in verse 1, Paul is speaking generally of the principle of law as a governing principle. Now, the principle of law is consistent in that it is only binding while a person is alive. When people die, we no longer hold them accountable for anything. The legal principle of the binding force of law is only applicable to the living. Let me illustrate. John Wycliffe died in 1384. Now, he is often referred to as the morning star of the Reformation. Now, he exposed many of the heretical errors of the Roman Catholic Church. And he had a passion for translating the Bible into English. We are the recipients of this. And his desire was that even the common man could read the Bible for themselves. I love that. He said, quote, believers should ascertain for themselves what are the true matters of their faith by having the scriptures in a language they all may understand. He was a strong promoter of the first complete translation of the Bible into English. But to one critic, he said, and boy, he had his critics. To one critic, he said, Quote, if God spare my life ere many years pass, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than you. <laughs> I think that was an insult. Now the Pope and the leaders in the Roman Catholic Church so hated Wycliffe. And after he died, what he started snowballed. They, were, they so hated Wycliffe for what he did that they decreed that his remains should be dug up and burned. And so, 44 years after he had died, in 1428, they had him dug up and burned. But do you think Wycliffe cared? <laughs> he was long dead to them, and it didn't matter what they did. The law only has rule over a person for as long as they live. After they die, there is nothing more that the law can really do to them. The law at that point has no real effect on them. However, while a person is living, the principle of law does have dominion over them. The word dominion is a form of the Greek word kurios, which means lord. Uh, while a person is living, the law is lord over them. It rules over them. 
But when a person dies, that relationship with the law is ended. Now, I have some really good news for you this morning. The good news is you do not have to obey any of the tax laws of the land. Isn't it wonderful that I'm sharing this with you this morning? And you say, thank you, pastor. But the bad news is you have to die to get into that position. Okay? Just remember the last part. The law has no authority over a dead person. You can stop paying taxes when you die. Paul now goes on to illustrate this truth by marriage. Verse 2. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. Now, Paul is not here dealing with a full-orbed theology of marriage, divorce and remarriage. He is simply using the institution of marriage in the norm as an illustration. So he's not dealing with all these exceptions. And there are some. But rather speaking in terms of the norm to make his point. He's, using an, he's making an, an illustrative point here. Moody Bible Commentary, Paul's intent was not to give binding instruction on divorce. To understand this text as representative of Paul's view of divorce is ill-advised. Yeah, I think that's true. You want to go to other places like 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In the norm, a woman who is married to a husband is bound by law to her husband for as long as he lives. A married couple remains married until one of them dies. However, if the husband dies, then the woman is released from the law of her husband. This is the norm according to law. A couple is married until one of them dies. Upon death, they're no longer married. This illustration is simple and straightforward. The point Paul is making with the marriage illustration is that the law of marriage is binding until death. However, death breaks the legal bond of marriage. At death, the obligations of marriage are no longer in place. The central point of verse 2 is that death frees from the law. He continues, verse 3, So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. So if while married to her husband, the wife marries another man, she has, then she is to be called an adulteress. Paul's point here is that a wife cannot have two husbands at the same time. She can't be faithful to her husband and marry another man at the same time. She can't have it both ways. The law of marriage does not allow for two husbands. The only way out is death. The only way where this wife can marry another man is for the husband to die. However, if the husband does die, she is free from the law of marriage. In that case, she is no adulteress, even though she marries another man. Death breaks the marriage bond where she is now free to remarry. A little footnote here. Paul is not here presenting a strict analogy, but simply emphasizing that death breaks the law of marriage, which frees up the surviving spouse to remarry. Also, Paul shows that the law of marriage does not allow for two spouses simultaneously. The only way one can have a different spouse is for a death to take place. Well, Paul is now 
going to take the principles illustrated in regard to the marriage union and apply them to the believer in Christ. Here's the point. Verse 4, therefore, that means I am now building on everything I have just shared in terms of principle. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. The word therefore, again, builds on what Paul has just said. It makes spiritual application of the death and remarriage principle Paul has just stated. Brethren refers to fellow believers. Paul is here dealing with the spiritual position of believers in Christ. And Paul says we have become dead to the law. The law is not dead to us, but we are dead to the law. And the way this happened, he says, was through the body of Christ, meaning through Christ's physical death on the cross. Well, this harmonizes with what Paul has already taught in chapter 6, that the believer is now in solidarity or union with Christ's death. When Christ died, we died with him. His death as our representative was our death. Uh, just by way of review, note a couple of references. Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Crucified with him. That the body of sin might be done away, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And again in 6, 8, now if we died with Christ, and we did, we believe that we should also live with him. So in Romans 6, the emphasis is that Christ died to sin. Romans 6, 10. Well, the emphasis here in Romans 7 is that Christ also died to the law. Neither sin nor the law any longer has any jurisdiction over him. And then by way of solidarity, neither sin nor the law has any jurisdiction over the believer either. What applies to Christ applies to us, since we are now in union with him. What Christ did on the cross not only freed us from the penalty of sin, but it also separated us from the rule of law, the law. We are now sin-free and law-free, that is, in terms of the Mosaic law. We are not under that at all. Cross-reference, Colossians chapter 2, Paul speaking, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This relates to the, all the charges of how we broke the law. The penalty has been paid. It was nailed to the cross as Christ paid for it there. Having disarmed penalties and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food, what you drink, in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon, or Sabbaths. This relates to the ruling authority of the law. It's no longer in place. The penalty's been taken care of. The ruling authority of the law has been set aside. You're not under that anymore. We're not under the law. We're now under Christ. Now, the marriage arrangement with the law required a death. And that death was Christ's death, which was our death. And this needed to be in place so that we might get remarried. There had to be a death to the law so that we might be married to Christ. 
William McDonald says, in applying the illustration, we must not press each detail with exact literalness. For example, neither the husband nor the wife represents the law. The point of the illustration is that just as death breaks the marriage relationship, so the death of the believer with Christ breaks the jurisdiction of the law over him. Exactly. Marriage to Christ cannot coexist with marriage to the law. You know, I really would like all my Hebrew roots friends to study this passage. You can't have it both ways. You see, marriage to Christ cannot coexist with marriage to the law. That would be spiritual adultery. You can't be committed to Christ and committed to the Mosaic law at the same time. Now Christ is to be Lord of your life. He's your husband, not the law. In conversion, we are now dead to the law and married to Christ. This was made possible because of our spiritual union with Christ in his death. We died with him. We are also raised in solidarity with him to new life. We are now married to him, to him who was raised from the dead. You know what this makes for? It makes for a very lively marriage indeed. It's full of life. This is so wonderful. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, Paul says, But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. We have become married to Christ. We are now one spirit with him. In Ephesians 5, Paul emphasizes that the marriage relationship is a picture of Christ in the church. After describing the role of the husband and wife in marriage, he says this. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. This is a great mystery. I mean, it's previously not known what, what, what the meaning really was, but is now being uh, revealed. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And then in 2 Corinthians 11, 2, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Believers in Christ are now dead to the law and married to Christ. Now, I want you to know, uh, I don't consider myself an expert in marriage. In fact, all the books I read say there are no experts, right? But I've been married for almost 40 years. Can you believe? I asked Janie, how in the world did you put up with me for all these years? I don't remember what she said, but anyway. <laughs> but... I want you to know, I know one thing about marriage. And I know it's true, and you know it's true too. You know what marriage does? It changes your life. If you get married, I can promise you one thing. It will change your life. Every married person in the world knows this to be true. And that's Paul's point. Being married to Christ has forever changed our lives. You say, well, it hasn't changed my life. Maybe you're not married. Maybe you're still married to the law, married to sin, married to the devil, whatever. Married to Christ has changed our lives. It's changed our relationship with sin. It has changed our relationship to the law. I love this from Stephen Cole, Pastor Stephen Cole. He says, picture a woman married to a demanding, perfectionist man. He's the kind who takes a white glove and wipes it on the top of the door molding to see if it has been dusted. 
Oh, he's living dangerously, isn't he? She lives in constant fear that she will not please him. But then, much to her relief, he dies. <laughs> Sometime later, she meets a loving, kind, and caring man. They fall in love and get married. Now she still cleans the house and cooks the meals, but she does it joyfully out of love, not dutifully to meet the demands of an impossible tyrant. Now he says the analogy breaks down in that the law did not die. Rather, we died to it. But we no longer have to strive in vain to meet its impossible demands as the grounds of our acceptance with God. Rather, Christ met those demands for us, and we are joined to him in love. Now, we still live to please him, but our whole motive has changed from duty that condemned us to love that accepts us. Ah, that's a great illustration. When a couple gets married, the normal expectation is that they will produce offspring. When we are married to Christ, the normal expectation is that we will bear spiritual fruit to God. Note Paul states the purpose of marriage to Christ is that we should bear fruit to God. This corresponds with what he said in Romans 6.22. So let me show you. Romans 6.22, now having been set free from sin, having become slaves of God, which is now our position, we are slaves of his, he's our master, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. He states this as a fact. And then in Romans 7, 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Dead to sin, we have fruit. Married to Christ, we have fruit. A key purpose of our being free from the law and married to Christ is so that we might produce fruit unto God. Uh, you know, this is really to be characteristic of true disciples, true believers who follow Christ. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing, Christ says. And then a few verses later, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. This is characteristic of those that really belong to Christ. So let me ask you, are you married to Christ? Where is the fruit? The expectation is that if we are married to Christ, there will be spiritual fruit, such as seen in the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we will not all bear the same amount of fruit. And there may be periods where it's like, boy, I don't see a lot of fruit. Yeah, all of that is true. But the expectation is that when you look at the overall picture, there will be some fruit. Like John Newton said, you know, I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I'm going to be. But thank God I'm not what I was. We are new creations in Christ with the expectation there will be some fruit. The Bible is clear, is it not, that he who begun a good work in you will perform it until he drops you. No, that's not what it says. He will perform it until the day of Christ, Philippians 1.6. Well, Paul now draws a contrast between our position prior to salvation and the position we now have after conversion. Verse 5, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. The description of in the flesh is a description of our position 
of being in the bondage of sin. Bondage to our sin nature before we were saved. At that time, our flesh, our sin nature, controlled our lives. In Romans 6.20, Paul described this as being slaves of sin. In Romans, Paul makes a distinction between the lost who are in the flesh and the saved who are in the spirit. Uh, jump ahead just a couple chapters here. Romans 8 and 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You're not in the realm of, of, of the flesh where the flesh is now your king. It's now your Lord. No, that's not, you're not there anymore. You're now in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. In the flesh is the very opposite of being in Christ. The sphere we are in emphasizes the major controlling reality of our lives. Now, a believer can yield to the flesh and do the deeds of the flesh. But the believer cannot be in the flesh. Being in the flesh is the idea of being controlled by the sin nature as in the sense of being in bondage to it. In our unsaved state of being dominated by the flesh, we had our sinful passions aroused by the law. And even now as believers, we still have the flesh. And we still struggle with this. And as we will note further on in chapter 7, we will get intensely into this struggle. But the fact is, we're no longer in bondage to it. Now, the law did a couple of key things. Number one, the law exposed sin by putting, if you will, a magnifying glass on it, so to speak. As Paul said in Romans 3.20, by the law is the knowledge of sin. But the other key thing the law did was to stimulate sin. You know, that's so interesting. You say, boy, I think you give, you give it law, it, it'll really rein things in. Not necessarily. The flesh is aroused by the law. There's something in the sin nature that responds to law by wanting to break it. The law breeds rebellion. It's a sin nature problem. Give the sin nature a law and it wants to break it. Some time ago I read a story. It went something like this. I couldn't find the story, but I remember it. It went something like this. There was a college campus. I don't even remember where it was, but it sprawled out over several acres of land. And uh, part of the patchwork was a part of the campus intersected with the pasture of a farmer. Well, the farmer put a sign up, no trespassing, not wanting the students to cut a path across his property to where they could get to another part of the campus. It was a a lot shorter. You just cut across his, his pasture. But the students paid no attention to the sign whatsoever. So the farmer got creative and put a sign up that said, beware of the bull. Well, that took care of the problem. Isn't that just like human nature? Give it a law, and it feels enticed to break it. But on the other hand, it does respond to self-preservation. <laughs> I kind of thought, maybe the farmer had a side like this up. I kind of like this. Uh, do not cross the field unless you can do it in nine seconds because the bull can do it in ten. Yeah, that's good. Another true story. A dad and his young son went to a basketball game. The little boy was only about four years old, but certainly old enough to understand uh, basic instructions. The dad had seats up higher 
But the little boy, as they were coming to the game, saw that his friend and his family were sitting on the front row. Well, as boys like to do, they wanted to be together. So the dad agreed. The family's all the other family's all good with it. But the dad agreed on this condition. He showed the little boy where the line of the court was. And he very clearly instructed him that he was not to cross that line at all. Well, the dad left the boy there on the front row with his friend, and he made his way up to his seat up much higher. Well, when he got up there, he looked down, and to his dismay, he saw his sweet little innocent boy looking over his shoulder and contemplating putting his foot over the line. Isn't that so human? The law, instead of stopping sin, actually feeds the flames. The flesh has what I call the forbidden fruit syndrome. It's lured by forbidden fruit. It feels drawn to cross the line. The flesh never saw a line it didn't want to cross. Somehow this forbidden fruit promises to satisfy, but it never does. In our unsaved state, the flesh had a field day in our lives, working in our members to bear fruit to death. There was nothing but the bad fruit of disobedience that ends in death. Well, married to the law, we brought forth fruit to death, which is in contrast to now being married to Christ and bearing fruit to God. Who you are married to really does make a difference. Being married to the law is a very unhappy marriage that carries with it a death culture. Have you ever known a happy legalist? Really, think about this. Legalists are miserable people. And you know, they're still amongst us. Now, they never would call themselves a legalist. I don't know many Christians say, I'm a legalist. <laughs> no matter how much of a legalist they are, they, never, they would never claim that. But they're miserable people, and they're very critical and self-righteous. Are you following my list? Oh, 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 oh. brother, something out of line here. Very critical and self-righteous. Paul called the law a ministry of death. And for the Christian to try and live under the law is nothing but frustration. You know, Peter talks about this. Acts chapter 15. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Frustrating yoke. We couldn't do it. So why are you trying to put all the Gentiles under the law now? The law can never conquer sinful passions. It only exposes and arouses them. Note the combination of law, sin, and death. They go together. The flesh is still working, if it will, if it can, in tandem with the law. I mean, that's the, that's the play that we're wrestling against. But we need to remember that we're dead to the law. And we don't have to give in to that stimuli. Verse 6, But we now have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. But is a contrast word. We're no longer under the domination of the flesh, 
stimulated by the law, that combination. Yes, we still feel its pull, which Paul will deal with later on in this chapter. But we've been delivered from the dominion of the law, the lordship rule of it. We have died to it. But being delivered from the law and its rule through the flesh does not mean that we're under nothing. We are now under grace, which has ushered in new realities and new desires. I want you to note the twin themes of Romans 6 and 7 as compared by George Zeller. I stole this from George Zeller, which I communicated with him a few weeks ago and said, you know, I really like your stuff. I'm, you know, I'm using this or whatever. He was, he was very happy about it. But anyway, uh, Romans 6 and Romans 7, keyword sin versus law. Believer's relationship to sin, to law. Dominion, sin has dominion. Law has dominion. Death, I died to sin. I died to the law. Freedom, free from sin, free from the law. Newness, walk in newness of life, serve in newness of spirit. Uh, fruit of the flesh, fruit of the spirit. Great contrast all the way through there. So note the emphasis in Romans 7, 1 through 6. It's all about our former bondage to the law and now being freed from it. Boy, this emphasis is throughout what we're studying here. Uh, verse 2, bound by the law, released from the law. Freed from the law, dead to the law, sinful passions aroused by the law, delivered from the law, died to what we were held by. You know what? The law sounds like something terrible, doesn't it? But in truth, the problem was our sinful self. As Paul will go on to show, this is really not a law problem per se. We ourselves were the problem. We needed to die. We needed to die to sin, and in dying to sin, we died to the law as seen in our union with Christ. And that reality has now freed us to serve in a whole new way, in the newness of the Spirit instead of the oldness of the letter. Now, the oldness of the letter is a way of saying under the law of Moses. We're no longer serving under the threat of the law. We're no longer serving an outward mechanical master that lacks any inward power. We're no longer tied to all the ceremonial rules and regulations. Rather, grace has ushered in a whole new arrangement. It's not performance-based, which we, we just can't get away from that. But it's not performance-based, but rather relationship-based. We are now in a faith relationship with Christ. It's a grace relationship based on love instead of legalism. We now feel the pull of our married grace relationship with Christ. The word serve in Romans 7, 6 is actually a form of the Greek word doulos, literally meaning slave. Literally, verse 6 says that we should serve as slaves in the newness of spirit. Grace moves us to serve in this way. We now serve out of gratitude and out of love. Now, in a good marriage, you serve your spouse out of love. You want to serve them, not because you have to, but because you love them. You know, the New Testament assumes that we love Jesus as believers. 1 Corinthians 6, or 8, 3, if anyone does not love God, this one 
If anyone loves God, this one is known by him. And then again in 1 Corinthians 16, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Expectation is true believers do love the Lord. 1 Peter 1.8 says of Jesus, whom having not seen, you love. It's a given. 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. On some level, all believers love Jesus. And they want to serve him. It's why we hate it when we fail. And here is the amazing thing. What the law was unable to do, God in grace, by his spirit, is able to accomplish in and through us as we walk in the spirit. The problem is we're we're not as consistent as we should be in our walk. But when we walk in the spirit, we fulfill the righteous demands of the law. Romans 8, 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You walk in the spirit, you're meeting the the moral, righteous, ethical demands of the law. Romans 13, oh, no, anything except to what? Love one another. For he who loves another has, what? Fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, murder, steal, bear false witness, covet. There's any other commandment. We're all summed up in this. Namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. We're not under the law of Moses, but we are under the law of Christ, which is really a way of saying the law of love. And we are now able to fulfill the moral love aspects of the law Because we have the Spirit. We have the Spirit empowering us. The fruit of the Spirit is first love. We can live this way because of the new system of grace we are now under, which is a relationship reality, a grace reality, a love reality. But then note this. When Paul says that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, this phrase can be understood a couple of different ways. And I want to be gracious here because most commentators take a different view than I do. We can't all be right. Just kidding. I I really do want to be humble here. And, uh, you know, maybe they're right. But I'll tell you why I think the way I do. Most understand the word spirit here to be in reference to the Holy Spirit. And, of course, that's an interpretation because in the Greek it just says in spirit. It's not capitalized. But uh, that's why they capitalize it. Many of the translations even do. This is certainly possible, and certainly the Holy Spirit is in the mix, as I will explain. However, very literally, the word spirit does not have the definite article. Had the definite article, uh, they would really have me over on, on that side. But it doesn't have the definite article. It very literally reads, serving newness of spirit, which grammatically could just as well refer to the new spirit we now have in conversion in the sense of our new nature. Note a couple of things. Paul used very similar language in Romans 2.29 where he said, a true Jew is one inwardly whose circumcision is that of the heart in spirit. Not in letter. Certainly the Holy Spirit is involved here, but the emphasis at this point is that this takes place in the sphere of the Spirit. 
in the hidden place of the heart and not in the sphere of the letter, which is to say the outward legality in conformity to the letter of the law. Now, I think we may have the same type of emphasis here in Romans 6 or 7, 6. And a key reason I think this is because of the flow of thought in Romans 7. Paul, in very, very short order, is going to move to the reality of great frustration and the struggle with indwelling sin. He does not really get to the power of the Holy Spirit, which gives us victory, until we get to chapter 8. So I take it the newness of spirit relates to our new nature that comes about as a result of being dead to sin and the law and now being married to Christ. As believers, our spirit is now one spirit with the Lord. That's our spirit. One spirit with the Lord. That's our new nature. We, in our spirit, are now partakers of the divine nature. Furthermore, note the contrast. The sinful passions of the old sin nature, in verse 5, are now contrasted with the newness of spirit, new nature, in verse 6. But here's the thing. Although we have a new nature, and we now desire to serve in newness of this reality, still within ourselves we lack power. As new creations in Christ, we have holy desires. I mean, the new nature really does have holy desires. But the new nature by itself lacks power. This is the frustration. Paul relates as we move on through chapter 7. I'm not there, but we'll get there, Lord willing, where he desires to do what is right. That's the new nature. And yet he does what he hates. And then finally, when we get to Romans 8, we find the power to live out the new life we have in Christ is by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned more in Romans 8 than in any other chapter in the Bible. However, before we get to Romans 8, there's a whole lot of frustration in Romans 7. And many Christians live in Romans 7, and they never seem to get to Romans chapter 8. Therefore, I tend to think Romans 7, 6 is descriptive of a new spirit, our new nature, that is now called to live in the newness of life. Paul mentioned in Romans 6, 4, but it needs the power of the Holy Spirit to do so. The desire is there. Sinful passions aroused by the law. But now we have newness of spirit, new desires. But it's all dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. As new creations in Christ, our service is of a spiritual nature versus the old straight jacket outward forms of legalism as found in the law. It's all relationship-based, based on inward change of a person. It's an inward perspective versus an outward one. It's now about the law of love, not the law of legalism. Now, the common ground of the law and of grace is that both call for obedience. The law could not deliver because of human weakness. 
But under grace, under grace, we're in union with God and his spirit. Life-changing reality. Under grace, we have a new nature that desires holiness. Yes, we still have the flesh. <laughs> Paul's going to deal with this. But we have a new nature that desires holiness. And we also have the Holy Spirit to empower us to live it out. As believers under grace, we're now under a new covenant. The new covenant is about a number of things. But a key one is about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how God changes us from the inside out. As the church, we partake of the spiritual aspects of the new covenant. And the new covenant is all about life change, powerful life change from the inside out. Note this text that is really dealing with the new covenant back in the, the Old Testament here in Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. You know what that is? I think that is Romans 7, 6. There's more to it. There's a combo here. But this is our new nature. A new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. This is new covenant stuff. This is where we live as believers. We are a new creation in Christ. And then he says, furthermore, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will keep my judgments and do them. New nature, God's Holy Spirit. In combination, I think in Romans 7, 6, we're talking about the concept in Ezekiel 36, 26 in particular. We are now married to Christ. We now have a new nature that desires to serve him. There's an old line that goes like this. I do not work for my soul to save. That, my, that work my Lord hath done. But I will work like any slave for the love of God's dear son. You know, here's where we are as believers. This is what Paul is showing us. The believer is alive to Christ, a slave to Christ. Three different metaphors here that are used. We're alive to Christ, a slave to Christ, and married to Christ. That equals a changed life. Note the challenge is to live and grow in consistency with who we are in Christ. We're married to him. We need to be faithful to him. This is a supposedly true story. I always say that because, you know, I just kind of wonder. These stories are so great, it's hard to believe they're real. But here it goes. One day after a young couple returned from their honeymoon, the young man had a really hard day at work, and he was exhausted. After work, he drove home like he had done so many times in the past. However, when he arrived home, he suddenly discovered that he had absentmindedly gone to his mother's house instead of going home to his new bride. He had temporarily forgotten that he was now married. A tip to all of you married folks, don't forget you're married. And a word to all of us Christians, don't forget you're married to Christ. Don't go back to your old haunts. You're married to Christ. As a brand new Christian, the guy who was instrumental in me coming to the Lord said to me in a good and challenging way, okay, you say you believe, but are you married to Jesus? Well, I got it, even as a brand new Christian. It's a great way of qualifying the results of a true saving faith. 
There really are two key verses in Romans 5 and 6 that speak to the nature of a saving faith commitment. In Romans 5, 17, and I like this, it's easy to remember because 5, 17 and 6, 17, they really kind of go together. But in 5, 17, for if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one Jesus Christ. This is all about receiving, receiving the gift, the grace. It's receiving Christ as Savior. And we do this by faith, as it says in Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Note the emphasis in 5.17, receiving grace and the gift. We have to receive it, and we do that by faith. And then in Romans 6.17, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, that's where you were, and the whole theme is slavery. Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. The form of doctrine is the lordship of Christ. In saving faith, we obeyed from the heart the truth that Jesus is Lord. It's called the obedience of faith. Saving faith believes in Christ as personal Savior and Lord, as seen in Romans 5 and 6. It's like saying, I do at a marriage ceremony. Thus, we enter into a life-changing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our lives are forever changed. In marriage, a man and a woman forsake all others and say, I do to one another. In the same way, true faith repents, turns from sin, to believe on, say, I do, to Jesus as Lord and Savior. So let me ask you, are you married to Jesus? Have you, as a matter of obedience of the heart, said, I do, Jesus, I do believe in you as my Lord and Savior? John 1.12, as many as received him, that's Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Who is it? To those who believe in his name. Well, have you received him? Come to him. Receive him. Say, I do. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song.